Hey, everyone, and welcome to the State of the Art Podcast with me, your host, Ethan Appleby. I'm very excited to bring you along as I dive into conversations with amazing people who are at the intersection of art and technology. Each week, you'll hear a different angle about how tech is bringing radical change in the way all of us interact with art. We have on artists to first-time collectors, as well as CEOs from some of the top digital art companies. We'll also look at the effects social media sites and crowdsourcing platforms are having on the art world and explore how other creative industries, such as music and fashion, were democratized using technology. So before we get started, I want to ask, did you catch our earlier episode with Patreon, the site that gets creators paid by running a membership business for their fans? Look, we liked it so much and we're so inspired that we created our own Patreon page. Really, we did it for two reasons. One, it lets us connect with you, our fans and listeners. And two, it helps us continue to make great content, get on better speakers, and find creative ways to continue this conversation with art and tech. So look, you can pledge as little as a dollar and become one of our patrons. To do so, check out patreon.com slash state of the art. This week, I'm excited to present Suhair Khan, our first Googler on state of the art. Suhair works with the Google Arts and Culture Group, where they have an amazing team of creative coders innovators, art historians, all investigating ways to increase accessibility to cultural institutions across the globe. In this episode, we asked Suhair about Google's role and relevance to the arts and culture sector, how Google is using cutting edge technology to bring cultural experiences to anyone with an internet connection, and how we can all improve the discovery of art. So please welcome this week's guest, Suhair Khan. Suhair, welcome to the State of the Art Podcast. It's great to have you on. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. I love your podcast. I've been listening to it all day. Well, you're making me blush, but thank you. You know, <laughs> you're the first Googler that we've had on, uh, so I'm really excited to have you. But even more so, like myself, you're you're a globetrotter. I mean, you've worked in Milan and Asia, in Singapore and London. I mean, what's your what's your background and story? Yeah, I will. I have lived in many places, and um, I I grew up in Asia, um, but also sort of half in Europe. And I went to university in the US and that's how I ended up joining Google. Uh, and then I've worked in many countries around the world. Um, I originally joined Google, not looking at art and culture. I was more interested in emerging markets and thinking about how to bring technology to users in different parts of the world. But I've grown up with art. My mom runs an art gallery. Uh, my sister is in the art world. She is a curator. She used to work for Sotheby's and uh, it has just become a very natural transition for me to be working on culture and art. And I feel really lucky to be doing so at, uh, with all of this technology and, and reach at my disposal now. How would you describe Google arts and culture? I mean, I don't think arts and culture is the first thing people think about when they think of Google. That is true. Um, so Google's mission is to organize the world's information and to make it universally accessible. And there is a sense that it is important to do that with all kinds of information. And when this platform was actually founded in 2011, there was very little content from the world of art online at the time. It was sort of pre-selfies and, uh, you know, Instagram. And so you'd see paintings in terrible quality or with watermarks on them. And so it just became quite a glaring gap in terms of what was available on the Internet. And, and that's kind of how this platform came about to organize the world's cultural information and to make it accessible to people. I mean, what do you think 
the art world can do better to sort of make aware of all these incredible projects that you're working on? The art world, I think that it is really up to us. I think Google Arts and Culture is unique in the sense that, first of all, we're a not-for-profit. We only work with not-for-profit institutions. Uh, So we're a little bit removed from what we think of as the contemporary commercial art world. Um, But we work with partners on partnerships. And so when we work on a big project, we rely on our partner institutions, whether it's the MoMA um, or the National Gallery in London or the British Fashion Council to work with us to tell the stories uh, of our collaboration to people who are familiar with their work and who love their work and their collections. And that's really how we hope to, to engage more people with it. And I think obviously it's it's you know a matter of time, people getting their hands on different obscure features that we launch or 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 projects that we launch that really resonate with them and their interests and maybe they're where they're from. Yeah. So I know you just did a big project with the National Gallery in London, right? Tell tell me more, tell us more about that. So they have just opened an exhibition on Monet. It's called Monet and Architecture. And um we've been looking to do a special project with the National Gallery for some time now. And it just came about that it was a perfect opportunity to work on creating an online experience around the work of Monet and how it uh, relates to space. So cities, um, buildings, sites that really inspired him and how we could use our platforms to create a connection for users around the world, both to enjoy and appreciate and to dive into his paintings and to learn about the inspirations, but also to think about the world and the idea of travel and how we actually can sit and look at a place and imagine, you know, his painting coming out of it at a particular time and space. So we work with our curators to tell the story online of the collection of the exhibition. And we've also actually done an installation on site where people can use a Google Earth experience to really explore um, where these paintings are inspired from and what they look like today. I love that, uh, that use of technology. So, I mean, for listeners, just help us kind of imagine, like, what is the Google Street View experience like? What are we, what are we looking at? What are we walking through? So the Street View experience is, um, you can enter a building, you can enter a museum, you can walk down uh, the alleyways of the walled city of Lahore in Pakistan, or you can wander down the halls of the Met in New York and really feel that you are in an immersive 360-degree environment, um, taking in artworks on the walls and really engaging with the work. We now have it very well annotated. So you can be looking at it on your phone or online and then actually click on one of the paintings that you see and learn more about it. So it's a very interactive experience and it does allow for access to people who could never come to the Met uh, or who could never go to visit Mass P in Sao Paulo and, and, and adds this idea of immersion that increasingly is becoming part of how, how we live and how we explore places virtually. That's amazing. What, um, I mean, how do you, so you mentioned working just with nonprofits and, and this is one example of a project. I mean, how else do you use technology or interact with these institutions? Um, and are there any particular projects that you're really excited about? Yeah, well, I'm usually excited about the projects that we're working with. So what we do is we, we think of ourselves as a platform. We're an online platform where any cultural institution can come and share their collections and share stories of exhibits and, and the opinions of their curators. But we also provide support in terms of digitization. So we send in our engineers to capture extremely high resolution imagery of paintings. Um, we take our street view cameras in. We have a special tracker called the museum tracker, which doesn't bump into paintings and navigate small corners. And uh, we send those down. And then we add on layers. So 
as we launch new experiments from our lab in Paris, uh, we'll add on layers which allow for serendipity and exploration using machine learning. You know, you can search by color or by chronology. There's many different ways we're playing with content once it's online. Uh, and each institution is different. So what each institution wants is very different. Um, we just, as I mentioned, worked on the Monet project at the National Gallery. And we're working on a really great project with the mayor of London's office um, for later this year. And we actually last week also announced um, a new project on contemporary art, which is probably our coolest project um, in the last few weeks. It's a global project, but we've got amazing institutions from there's an African art collective in Nigeria where we have the Lagos a photo fair online now. And um, there is the Burjil Art Foundation in the UAE and all of these interesting institutions that literally most of us would not even know about, let alone go and visit um, because of how big the world is and how much there is out there. That's great. And, you know, I, there's a sort of feeling that the art world or the institutions of the art world have been very resistant to technology. I mean, how have you seen that that change? And what do you think, I mean, they're, they're probably obvious, but what are the motivations of these institutions um, to reach out to Google? Well, it has changed in the last five or six years just because uh, the obviousness of how important technology is to the way we live day to day has really changed. Um, and that has helped us in many ways. When we did launch the project, we started off as a Google art project. So we only worked with art specific institutions. There were 17 of them. So uh, from from the Met to the MoMA to the Tate in London. Um, and there has been a sense of openness now from curators and from directors as they see that visitors are engaging a lot more, obviously, with the devices in their hands, but also have a different sense of the experience of seeing an art exhibition uh, when they're there, when there is some technology. But we have to be sensitive to the institution at hand and also um, the, the exhibition that's taking place and uh, and how we're engaging with something physically. An example of a recent collaboration that was really fun was with the British Library. Uh, they had an exhibition on Harry Potter. And it was really like looking at the history of magic and how, um, you know, medieval manuscripts and cauldrons and objects related to uh, the actual book series and, and contemporary culture in terms of Harry Potter and, and what's that spawned in terms of the ideas of magic and myth and legend. And for that, we had installed an augmented reality experience inside the British Library. Um, which was the first time they had done anything like it, but it was bringing this 400-year-old celestial globe to life, sort of recreating how the stars inspired some of the Harry Potter characters. So it was fun and different and unique, and we just worked really closely with the curators of the exhibition to make sure that they liked it and that it meant something to them and that it actually added to the exhibition uh, and wasn't just shoving a piece of technology into place. Um, but I think in a broader sense, the idea of bringing your collection online is something that does really resonate with a lot of institutions. Obviously, the tiny ones that um, you know are in remote locations or want to share their collections with people in other countries, but also the bigger institutions that just see the value of having you know their exhibits translated into like nine or ten languages, like the Monet exhibition has been, and um, having it featured on the Google homepage in many countries, uh, and just sharing all of the work they've done with an audience that is much broader than people who would be able to come and see the exhibition in real life. It's it's amazing. And, and also, I mean, they say, you know, generally only about 2% or less than 5% of an institution's collection will be shown at any one time. And so even probably bringing all of those online, you know, even some of the uh, people who work at the institution might be seeing artworks that they've never seen before. 
That's true. We actually just did a really cool collaboration with the MoMA um, in New York where uh, they had this huge cache of photographs, uh, which were actually photographs of exhibitions. So people walking through a Robert Rosenberg exhibition in the 60s. Um, and they didn't know how to match each photograph to the exhibition that had taken place. So our engineers in Paris actually worked to match 30,000 of those photographs to the online cache of artworks at the MoMA and to see if they could spot a particular artwork in the background of a, of a photograph. And they ended up matching, I think, like 27,000 of them. And it would have obviously taken years and years for that to happen in real life. So. You never know what you kind of come across at the end of one of these experiments. That's an incredible use of technology. What, what are obstacles that you see either technically or, or sort of culturally um, when, when doing these projects? Well, I mean, so we now work with about 1,700 institutions around the world, 70 countries. So I think the biggest thing is just culture and being sensitive uh, and making sure you're representing uh, the, the collection of the institution in the best possible way, because that really is the goal of it. Um, and part of it is obviously distance and things like internet connectivity and, and working with uh, institutions that don't have a huge team of people just dedicated to digital. Uh, so those are some of the big challenges. But at the end of the day, we do also strive to, to get everybody on board and to make sure they have the same resources and, and access. And so we want to make sure that our street view tools are available to institutions in Africa and in Asia. Um, and so we spend a lot of time and energy with people on the ground, traveling, meeting institutions from Japan to Korea to Australia to make sure that distance and culture isn't really what gets in the way of them sharing their collections. That's a great mission. What, um, I mean, it sounds like you're very hands-on with all these institutions, but it's been 1700. I mean, how have you at least over time or do you see yourself evolving that it becomes more as we like to say in the Silicon Valley, you know, scalable. The thing with art and culture is that it, it is scalable in the sense you have this online platform, you have a content management system that works, but a lot of it is logistical. We are going and we're capturing photographs and uh, we're, we're doing collaborations that require people. But also, uh, like I said earlier, being sensitive to the collection, working with the curator, making sure that if we're doing a special project, um, it is something that makes sense for them and really resonates with their vision for their institution. But in general, any institution can sign up. Uh, we have tiny institutions all over the world that are our partners uh, and we work with them very closely. There's, you know, obviously the regular instructions online and um, helping them to figure out how to use the platform and upload things. But um, it is scalable in the sense that you can do it if you want to do it and if you're trained to do it. But there does have to be some degree still of having a connection with these institutions. And we try our best to do that. And we don't think that it's something that can be lost. Yeah. Tell me about this app that you came out with or a portion of your app, the selfie uh, matching tool that went viral. I've never seen so many people connecting with art than doing the selfie tool and getting matched. I mean, how did that idea come about? Let's start there. So that idea is really part of what we've been doing for several years, which is looking at how you can create fun entry points for people to explore our platform. We have millions and millions of objects on the platform. Each of them has been individually uploaded with museum level metadata by an institution. And it's really difficult for people to explore all of it and to give visibility to all of the institutions that we work with and all of the objects on the platform. 
So we have a team that works really hard to figure out how to create fun experiences for visitors to serendipitously just fall upon an artwork or an object. And so that is what this was the result of. It was meant to be a way of engaging people in a way that was surprising and unexpected um, and, and brought them to discover something new about the art world and apparently also about themselves. And so we were definitely surprised. Um, yeah, I was going to say, how unexpected was the response? We were very surprised. Um, it was totally unexpected. Uh, we thought it was a really fun tool. We loved playing with it in the office and um, we had no idea that it would really get the scale and excitement that it did. Um, and we were actually really thrilled because there was all of these amazing stories that came out from the matches and uh, all of these tiny institutions that suddenly had um, their portrait match. There was Kamal Nanjiani, the Silicon Valley star, had his his match was with um, this this art foundation in the UAE. And I got an email from them being like, oh, artists has been matched with a Hollywood star. So there is a lot of serendipity in dis- discovering, you know, often obscure portraits and and seeing what, what that says about ourselves and how we interact with uh, a very different world. So for us, it was, you know, bringing a new audience to these artworks in a way that obviously would never have happened otherwise. I want to take a quick break to tell you more about our Patreon page. As you know, here at State of the Art, we want to build the art and tech community, increase the conversation, and we love bringing you guests from across the art and tech world. But the thing is, there's so much more we want to do. We want to continue to bring you great guests. We want to do live podcasts. We want to increase the frequency. To do that, though, we need your support. Visit our page at patreon.com slash state of the art. Pledge just a dollar and you'll get access to exclusive content, behind the scenes footage, and a chance to be our super fan of the week. And let me tell you, this is pretty cool. Super fans will get a shout out on next week's episode and a chance to show your art and tech thoughts, events, or whatever within our social feeds. So go to patreon.com slash state of the art and become one of our patrons today. Now back to the episode. I love the term you use, you know, fun entry point, because I think that is the key uh, psychologically that most people, when they think of the art world, they think of something that is, is not fun or welcoming, you know, and the gallery experience is very intimidating and, and people just don't feel uh, the right to have an opinion because they don't feel knowledge, like they have to have an art history degree to to even think or question, which is just so unique because anything else, I mean, I feel like we're such an opinionated sort of culture and world now and you can get your opinion out there easier and easier. But when it comes to art, people are afraid to even talk about it. Um, and so having these these points of fun entry, you know, I, I do think that that's going to go a long way to to even making a cultural shift that we sort of need to get people to engage with art more. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we spend a lot of time thinking about that, is how do you make this accessible, not just physically, but in a way that takes away that layer of this being a very important art institution or something that is is obscure and difficult to understand. And we often actually, speaking of institutions, we do push them and we push the comfort level a little bit by trying to go behind the scenes and to find their curators and a much more relaxed setting and ask them random questions about their work and their day-to-day and really throwing them off because they're often used to writing very serious academic um, and important 
sort of treatises on their collections and, and what they're talking about. And um, we do try to open up for the world using technology and our storytelling tools, a slightly different angle, which sometimes work and works and sometimes doesn't. It's all about figuring out. It's funny you mentioned Kamal because he actually, so the SF MoMA, they did as part of their sort of experience, they had him give a tour. So you're like listening to an audio oh, of him really? talking about artwork and he's being intentionally ridiculous. And it's <laughs> funny, but what they then did was paired him with the curator who sort of in a cheeky way comes back at him explaining the artwork and the difficulty and the challenge. And so it's actually this incredibly engaging experience. And like, you know, whether it's because he's being funny, whether it's because he's a you know, celebrity, it makes, you know, I think it more accessible for, for a lot of people. And so it's interesting because similar to what you did with the selfie thing, it's, it's, it is a use of technology, but it's also, it's a little bit more than that. Um, to again, not just make something sort of accessible online, but rather, sort of emotionally accessible. Yeah, I think so. And also thinking of of areas of the art and cultural world which feel more accessible. We did a project last year on fashion, looking at culture through the lens of fashion and what it means to us. And we called it We Wear Culture. Um, and, and sort of trying to push the boundaries of, you know, how people identify with uh, their own culture, which, which has been really fun for us because you'll see very serious institutions um, suddenly wanting to, to share stories that they haven't shared before. Yeah, are there are there any other examples that come to mind of sort of these fun entry points, the ones that have worked or that haven't worked? Yeah, I mean, so we do we do a lot with what we call them experiments, and so the reason we're often surprised is we don't really know what direction it'll take, and often we we won't announce them. But uh, another one that we just actually launched a couple of weeks ago um, was called the Art Palette. And for that, you can take a picture of, of anything, a piece of cloth or a wall or uh, a flower, and you upload it onto the platform. And then it'll pull up all of the artworks in our collection that match the palette of that particular photograph. Um, or you could upload even uh, an image of, of a painting, for example. Uh, and that, you know, we did a really fun uh, promo video for that with Paul Smith, the fashion designer, because he thought it would be a great inspiration for him. He loves colors. He spends all day taking pictures of things. And suddenly he could see millions of artworks and think about how to play with their color for his next collection. Uh, so I'll send that to you later. But there is, a, there is a way of sort of playing with this idea. It doesn't just have to be to look at. You can make it useful. You can take it as something that could help a creative person or a designer or uh, a coder or whatever else. And there is inspiration in things, even if you're not actually looking you also talked about in an interview uh, that uh, Google will be doing a lot more with VR and AR. And, and I think, you know, that that's beginning to happen. You know, how is that evolving and, and uh, how do you see the importance of AR and VR in sort of making art more accessible? Well, I think with both of them, we're at very early stages. So, you know, everyone is still trying to figure out what works and what doesn't. And many institutions now are thinking about how to bring that back to the art world. So the way we work on this is in this, with the sense of would VR really work for this particular institution and why? Uh, we recently did a very educational, informative piece at this castle called Osborne House in England. Queen Victoria used to live there. And we felt like it was important to show it in 360 because she had spent a lot of time making the ceiling of the rooms like an Indian room. Um, and, and, you know, this movie just came out. She had this... Uh, she was very close to some of our Indian staff members, 
And we just thought there was no other way to show this room without doing a VR experience and having somebody walk around with the curator, look up at the ceiling, see the details and, and, and feel like they had actually been there. Uh, but in other cases, you know, a regular film is okay and as interesting and, and the story is told in a way that, um, that makes sense. Um, another amazing VR experience that we did was very conceptual. It was around an exhibition for the architect Zaha Hadid, who passed away a couple of years ago. And it was at the Serpentine Galleries in London, um, where she had, she had actually started their pavilion program, these architectural pavilions that they have every summer. And we worked with her team to create this really moving conceptual piece where you kind of disappeared into the world of four of her paintings. And each of those paintings actually represented a building that she had designed and that was never rendered in real life. So you go to the exhibition, you see all of these paintings, and you sit down and you put on this headset, and in a way, you go into her world. And it's not showing you anything or telling you anything. It's, you know, sort of uh, abstract pieces flying around you in music, but people found it very moving. And then there's other cases where we've done films that haven't really made sense and we felt that were maybe too long or um, just, you know, people could have gone there anyway or not really felt uh, the benefit of putting on a headset and disappearing into a world. The space where we, we've seen VR do really well is actually um, educational. Uh, so, you know, taking it to schools and, and letting kids explore a new place and, and hear the voice of a curator or a historian um, or an archivist really tell them about uh, their work or their collection. Uh, we did one with the Royal Shakespeare Company where you ha you go backstage and you meet an actor and you meet a director and a costume designer. And that has that that leads to a lot of joy and delight. And um, with AR, I think um, that's all new. You know, that's all going to be in people's hands and uh, we'll all see where that goes and we'll definitely be exploring it with, with other institutions. And um, there's lots of possibilities but again, it's it's really early stages. So we're working closely with all of our product teams to see how we can make it something that, again, augments the experience that you have and isn't just an experience for the sake of it. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, as you look to do this, uh, and like you said, you know, there's sort of tools online that institutions can use. I mean, is most of the, the work online, sort of, it's limited to nonprofits and, and sort of notable pieces. Have you given any thought to how this can help emerging artists or sort of lesser known contemporary artists? The thing is that we do have a residency program. Uh, we have a lab in Paris called the Google Arts and Culture Lab, and we host artists there every year. Uh, it's Some stay for longer than others. Some actually come to the lab every day and others work remotely. Uh, and as part of that, we've worked with Hans Ulrich Obris, 89 Plus Foundation. He's a director of the Serpentine Galleries, and he runs this foundation for artists that were born after 1989. So they're very young. Uh, and we've had different groups of them. Last year, we had a group of artists from Africa coming in. Um, we also just launched our first remote residency. We announced it in November with Somerset House Studios in London, where we have uh, an artist who has been selected to be our first machine learning artist out of residence. You know, she's she she applied for the position. Uh, it was part of an open call. So we definitely gave that opportunity. And that's something that we're just working through. It's not formalized in the, in the way many of these programs are formalized. And the goal really is to see where are we being useful? Where are we supporting artists? And how are we bringing our resources to support cool projects? And, and that'll keep evolving. And I do hope we can bring more of it to emerging markets and 
emerging artists in the future, but yeah, also emerging markets to other countries, to, to countries where there's fewer resources and, and we can really support the work of, of all of these um, amazing creative people. Yeah. And what about, I mean, supporting or creating something to in, increase the uh, intersection of art and tech. So, you know, an incubator or something, I mean, which Google kind of is known for, you know, having so many different types of companies under it. Have you given any thought to that? I think right now our work is all going to be with cultural institutions. So anything that we create will be in partnership with another institution. Uh, and again, I think that because we're doing so much of that internally, it doesn't make sense, uh, you know, to, to create something in-house that almost limits access uh, to institutions around the world. And our goal really is to support the efforts of the experts. Um, and and for, we, see, we see those as museums and arts institutions. That's wonderful. What... Um... Before, before I let you go, as you look out into the future, I mean, are there things that really excite you or even, you know, technologies outside of Google that you think are, um, you know, will really benefit the arts? Well, I, it, it's hard to say because there's so much changing right now and we, we don't really know what's coming uh, in terms of new technologies. But I do think that as more and more people get a smartphone around the world, there is just the, the opportunity to really expand the world of people that you wouldn't have expected uh, to connect with art or to connect with culture in the way that they're, that they're doing. And from my perspective, you know, I'm really curious to know what happens with AR. I think that having a whole other world in your hand uh, and being able to engage with beautiful things and, and artworks and objects will, uh, you know, make it just something that is fun and playful and inspiring uh, in a way that hasn't been done before. Agreed. I mean, the story is so important when it comes to art. So, you know, as much as you can, tell the story, show the story, show the studio space, or I mean, the examples you've given them walking down the street, uh, you know, I think will, you know, make it more relatable. Yeah. I mean, I should add actually that the one thing that I'm really passionate about is, is the idea of preservation and cultural preservation. And um, we, we actually have an amazing archaeologist who joined our team uh, a year and a half ago, and he's really focusing on the idea of you know, looking at heritage around the world and how can we use technology, you know, to, to document it. Um, a lot of things are being destroyed. A lot of things are changing because of climate change and population growth. You know, we all know that there's many conflicts going on in the world. And so really the work that archaeologists are doing in terms of how they're able to now really capture huge sites and objects uh, using technology is really important, I think, and is something that uh, can really shift how we see history when we look back on it in the future. And that kind of work is is taking place both within Google Arts and Culture, but obviously with lots of other institutions around the world. And I'm really curious to see how it goes because this is such a significant time and, um, you know, where we are with uh, holding on to what our own culture represents. That is... No, thank you so much. A great note for us to all to think about. But before I let you go... We have to do a quick rapid fire. Okay. All right. Are you ready? What's your favorite part about living in London? I like the transportation. Um, it's something that people complain about, but I love sitting on the bus. Like I climb up to the top floor and um, seeing all of the architecture, all of the buildings uh, through different eras and periods, which only London can offer passing me by. And then just feeling like you're with all of these people that have their own thoughts and are seeing something completely different from you. Love it. What's your favorite museum to visit in person? This is a tough one to visit in person, but it's actually in Lahore. It's in the walled city of Lahore. And it's this 
beautiful old um, house. And it's a seventh generation family collection, uh, which was sort of acquired since the time of the Mughal Empire and contains everything from ancient Gandhara artifacts to miniatures from Indian emperors and is something that you can only really see um, if you go there and are able to sit with the curators and the proprietor and really go through their collection and learn about what every little object represents in this magical old wow. street. That will be difficult to get to, but hopefully we get it on, on Google, uh, Coltrap. What's the most amazing cultural site you've seen in person? You know, I went to Lebanon last year for the first time and I went to Baalbek. It's on the border with Syria and it's like a 2,000-year-old Roman temple and it's seen everything from the Byzantines to the Ottomans to the Phoenicians. And right now, it you know, there's all of these temples from different eras. There's a mosque and um, it's now being protected in a sense by the Lebanese forces. Um, it's not very far away from Palmyra and it's one of the most magical places I've ever been to. And I recommend wow. really that anyone who can visits. All right. And lastly, if you could have any superpower, what would it be and why? I often wish I could just be a chameleon, just literally just fade into wherever I am, because I do feel like you mentioned, I travel a lot, I go to all these places, and I often feel like I wish I was just from that place. When I'm in a country, I want to be from there. So I always wish that I could go to Italy and be Italian and maybe go to Lebanon and be Lebanese. That's a, that would be that's the that's the first that we've had that. I love it. Sure, <laughs> this has been so much fun, but I know I have to let you go. It's almost your weekend, and uh, thank you so much. Thanks again for listening. You can find the Google Arts and Culture on Twitter at Google Arts, and find Suhair on Twitter at Suhair K. And don't miss next week's episode with Jason Bailey, founder of the Art Gnome blog and creator of a massive online database of the major 20th century players in the art world. Jason uses his extensive database to introduce the radical concept of Moneyball for art. Tune in next week to learn more. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review it. Leaving a review is super easy and it helps listeners like you discover the podcast. Oh yeah, and don't forget to check us out at State of the Art on Twitter for behind the scenes photos, a sneak peek to next week's episode, and really cool art videos you're gonna wanna show your friends. Until next week, this is your host, Ethan Appleby, signing off from State of the Art.